Lord, we do that your word would live in us and that it would bear much fruit to your glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, I invite you to complete a sentence for me. Uh, I just realised I don't have the clicker uh, mic. I invite you to complete a sentence for me. Don't do it aloud, just do it in your head. Parents want their children to be... I said in your head, Mike. Parents want their children to be... I, um, I plugged that question into the internet to Quora Digest. I'm not sure if you've ever been to Quora, but people put these sorts of questions in there and then a whole bunch of people give their ideas and a whole list of parents, as you can understand, supplied their answers to that. One parent said that they want their children to be courteous when they grow up, to treat others with courtesy. They want them to be responsible for their own education and responsible for their own possessions. Sounds good enough. Another parent said, gradually begin taking over from us the responsibility for taking care of your material life, providing yourself with food, clothing, shelter, and everything else. That's what one other parent wanted. That same parent said they want their child to be honest. Don't cheat the system, even if it would be easy to do so. And one more parent said, I have only a few expectations. Be respectful. Have respect for yourself and others. Take responsibility for your life decisions and be open. Don't hide anything, especially from your parents. Now, obviously, there were a whole bunch of other answers there and you could fill in all number of uh, things to that statement. But if you notice, there are a couple of common themes that come up there. Responsibility. Competence, kindness. What are all these? What are all these hallmarks of? They're the hallmarks of maturity, aren't they? Parents want their children to be mature. Why is that? Why is it? That's because maturity is about the end point of development. Maturity is an expression of completeness. We use it in a number of ways, don't we? We use it with, with plants. We speak of trees coming to maturity, of fruit maturing, ripening, ready to eat, complete. We even use it with things like insurance policies. When a, when a policy becomes payable, it has matured. Maturity is a desirable thing. But here's the thing. Maturity is not a given. And people are a great example of this. If you see a five-year-old throwing a tantrum in the shops because she didn't get what she wanted, you don't really think twice about that. Kind of goes with the territory. Developmentally, you think, yeah, she's immature. If you see a 55-year-old throw a tantrum in the shops because he didn't get his way, you're kind of thrown by that. You may be a little disappointed. You look at that man and you think, surely you should have matured past that by now. But as those Quora comments indicate, as the tantruming 55-year-old reminds us, there is more to maturity than simply getting older. It's something that both develops and is developed in us. Something that actually takes input from outside factors, parents, teachers, peers. And that input takes time and it takes toil. 
takes labor. It can be a struggle. It can be a battle even to bring children to maturity. Ask any of the older parents here in particular. But it's worth it. And this is helpful for us to consider because when the Bible speaks of being a Christian believer, it uses the very same language of maturity, as you would have heard in Kelly's reading. And if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, just after he had penned this particular passage, Paul, complete this sentence. God wants his people to be, Paul very likely would say, mature. God wants his people to be mature. Read in verse 128. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. That's what Paul's all about, presenting people mature in Christ. And this verse suggests to us like general human maturity, that spiritual maturity does not come naturally to us. Which means, even if you have been a Christian believer for years, you may not be a mature Christian believer. It's actually possible. It reminds us also that ministry doesn't begin and end with what we call evangelism and conversion. Someone turning to Christ is a moment of great joy for them, for the whole cosmos. It doesn't end there. And if we just leave someone like that, then it's a bit like leaving the child and expecting them to to grow to maturity on their own, as if the mere passing of time will do that. No, no, no. People are brought to maturity in Christ. And that's not easy. That's not easy because genuine Christian maturity goes against the grain. It puts a person at odds with the the spiritual posture of the world. And so it's a goal for which Paul has to labour, he says. Not only labour, but struggle. It's a struggle for him. And in fact, not just struggle, verse 24, indeed he suffers for this goal. His reference to suffering there in verse 24 is probably a reference to his present circumstances. At the time of this writing, he was imprisoned under house arrest in Rome for preaching about Jesus. In this sense, it really is a battle. Paul is, if you will, a prisoner of war. And yet, what can Paul say? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He rejoices in the battle. How? Because there's blessing there. Because there's blessing there. Because Paul knows that it is only the person made mature in Christ who can truly experience the full riches of that relationship, who can truly hold to the hope of glory. Paul knows it's only the person made mature in Christ who can truly rejoice amid the changing and the often trying circumstances of the present. Is that you, if you call yourself a Christian believer? Do you want that to be you? I want that to be you. I want that to be me. But how do we know? How do we know if we're maturing? How do we know if we are being matured? How do we mature others? What does that even look like? 
Well, that's what Paul unpacks for us for the most part of this passage. In this passage, he shows us the means of maturity, the ways God has given his people to be brought to maturity. He says three particular means. He kind of outlines them. And the first one is that God has provided us with gospel leadership. Gospel leadership. Presenting people mature in Christ requires leadership. God ordained leadership. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body. That is the church. I have become its servant according to God's administration that was given to me for you. Paul's just continuing on from last week. Verse 23, you might recall, if you just look there, it's the gospel of which he has become a servant. And that word gospel, that might be a bit of a buzzword. What does that even mean? The gospel just means the good news about Jesus. When you see gospel, it just equals Jesus. So gospel leadership is leadership that is grounded in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That is the starting point. God's appointment of him as a servant of Jesus' body, the church. The word translated there, servant, is literally deacon. A word often translated minister. You may recall that a couple of weeks ago I was ordained as a deacon in the church. That's the someone set aside, devoted to the service of Christ's church by God. But how is that service defined? What characterises it? Suffering characterises that service. In the Southern Cross magazine some years ago, the Sydney Anglican Diocese magazine, I read some years ago an account that a pastor gave of um, being in the early 80s and trying to weigh up whether he should pursue Anglican ordained ministry at the diocese. And he was waiting outside the room to have this interview and he happened to be waiting with another man who was there for the same purposes. And they found themselves talking and the man who wrote this article asked the other young man why he was pursuing Anglican ministry. And the man replied, well, I was asked to lead a service at church a while ago and when I stepped up the front, everyone stood for me. And I rather liked that experience so I thought I should become a minister. That is a rather different vision of ordained ministry to the one that Paul puts forth here, isn't it? God calls leaders to serve the body of Christ, not to be served by it. He doesn't call them to stand over it, but to suffer for it. That's what it means for Paul to be completing in my sufferings what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's suffering on the cross is lacking in none of its power and to erase sin. It was fully sufficient for that. No, no, what Paul is saying is is that he completes Christ's afflictions as the suffering one by experiencing the added sufferings necessary to carry his message to a lost world. Those following the suffering Messiah are going to suffer as they mature in him and live out that discipleship. How much more the leaders God has called to lead his people in that and to lead them to maturity. So that's the first means. God has given us gospel leadership. But gospel leadership exists because of the revelation of God's message. What he describes in, Paul describes in verses 26 and 27 as the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. 
God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's use of the word mystery here, it seems to be quite deliberate. It suggests that he has in mind the false teaching that had begun to infiltrate the Colossian church and which he will go to, on to talk against much more fulsomely next in the, in the following passage. But the word was a popular term among certain pagan religions to refer to secret information available only to an exclusive few. And Paul's saying, on the one hand, God's message is a bit like that. His purposes can only be known as he reveals them because he's God and we are not. In that sense, they have been hidden. And if there is a mystery here, it's that the, the promised Christ of the Jewish people now somehow indwells non-Jewish people. Previously, it had not been revealed that non-Jews would be a part of the church. Now they are. And in this way, Paul kind of turns that pagan religious understanding of the word mystery inside out. No, no, it's now revealed and made fully known. It's preached in all its fullness. We don't need to know anything else about who God is and what he has done. It is a revelation to Jew and Gentile. As, he, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6, preached all over the world now. And we stand 2,000 years later and we can say it has gone all over the world as we sit here tonight in Sydney, Australia. Gospel revelation. God has revealed himself to us so that we may know him more. But of course, gospel revelation doesn't just stop in God's revealing of himself. It must be proclaimed. Verse 28, we proclaim him. The truth about Christ is a message about Christ. Messages need to be communicated. They need to be proclaimed, otherwise they just stay silent. But what does, what does Paul say we proclaim? We proclaim him. It's interesting that he says that. He could have said we proclaim the gospel, but he says we proclaim him. And he seems to be referring directly back to that wonderful little bit that Mike unpacked for us last week in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Christ who is supreme in every way. Supreme in person, supreme in power, supreme in position, supreme in peace. We proclaim him. Any proclamation that does not include that Christ is no proclamation of the gospel. But what does this proclamation look like? Well, it looks like teaching. That kind of makes sense to us. Paul says that there. But he also says warning, doesn't he? Warning and teaching everyone. How is that possible? The message of Jesus is a message of great hope. Where does warning come into it? But by its very nature, it is both a message of great hope and a message of warning like the lighthouse like a lighthouse warning people about the dangers of shipwrecking themselves on the rocks of living for self on the rocks of living without our creator warning them of running their faith aground on the shore of false religion I don't know I don't know the gospel directs people away from those dangers to the safe depths of the supreme Christ. And this proclamation is for everyone. No one is outside its saving power. And that's partly why we hold public church services just like this. 
so that anyone can just come and hear it. It's why at Easter time and Christmas and other times, people from Minchinbury go out and they hand out leaflets and they let a box and maybe even door knock or walk up to people in the mall outside Mount Druitt Westfield or head into the city to help the disadvantaged in the name of Jesus. And this isn't a very popular aspect of God's message. Don't force it on others. Keep it to yourself. That's a particularly strong pushback in our culture. And yet, a means to maturity and a sign of maturity is the willingness to proclaim the message of the Bible to everyone, whatever the cost. Because that is the goal of all ministry, isn't it? At least as far as Paul sees it. We labour to present to all people mature in Christ. And God has given us the means of maturity, gospel leadership, making known gospel revelation through gospel proclamation. And then Paul concludes this passage by bringing a few of these truths together as we start to see a bit of the experience of maturity. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he you know, restates his struggle on behalf of the Colossians, as well as, did you notice, those in Laodicea and all who have not seen me in person. Paul is struggling on behalf of all these people he's never met because he has a unity with them. And God has a unity with them. And so he tells them this in order to encourage them and to assure them that such is their unity in the gospel. Even if he's never met them in person, they are dear to God. And so they are dear to the Apostle Paul. And so he's going to labour for them. Anytime he proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles, he does it on behalf of all. And then in verses 3 and 4, you'll see there that Paul shows he is aware of the particular dangers that the Colossian church is facing in the form of persuasive and deceptive teaching about Jesus. And so he reminds them there that he's writing all of this about who Jesus is and the completeness of what he's done and the riches that are found in him. He's writing all of this so that the Colossians may have clarity about who Jesus is and who they are in him. And so then they might have confidence in Jesus, the clarity and confidence that characterizes someone of mature faith. And that's why we're teaching it. Why week after week, Mike and I get up here to teach you those same truths. Why you are teaching it to one another in discipleship groups or to, in D teams, in conversations after church, in a world that is so deceptive, that directs our attentions and our affections everywhere but to Jesus. There are bedrock truths that we need to be reminded of. And Paul says to the Colossians, remember this. Have clarity and be confident. And yet at the same time, how does he conclude this little section in verse 5? He speaks of rejoicing again. That's where he began, rejoicing and suffering for them. Now he says he rejoices because of how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. That sounds a bit weird, to rejoice in how well ordered they are. Is he talking about their organisation of their church structures or the way they run their church services? No, he's not talking about that. 
It's most probably a military term that he's, that he's using there. Like a general, he's keeping careful watch on their readiness for the spiritual warfare into which they may shortly be plunged. But for the moment, Paul is happy with what he sees. Their readiness is a measure of their already developing maturity in Christ. And so all of this leads us to a, a question, doesn't it? Are you maturing in Christ? Only you can answer that question, of course. But you should be. Are your fellow Minchinbury members here at 6pm maturing in Christ? As much as you can tell. Hopefully they are. They should be. Because God has given us the means to maturity. We have God's revelation. We have the Bible. Just think about that. The infinite God has revealed himself in a way that we as finite people can access and go to time and time and time again from the youngest of age until we breathe our last. We can read the Bible and understand it more and more, how it all points to Christ. As you read it, it will shape you. And as you read it with others, it will shape you and them. So let me encourage you, Read it yourself alone, but read it with others. If that means joining a discipleship group, please do that. What a wonderful opportunity to hear how others are being shaped by God's word. Or just find a reading partner and read with them. And we have God's proclamation. Read the Bible and be confident that Christ will give you the words to explain its truth to others. So, you know, make that reading partner someone who's not a Christian. And let them discover Jesus and explain him to them as you read the word. God's revelation. It will shape them and it will shape you as you do it. It will mature you. And maturing by these means will be a struggle at times. We live in a sinful world. People reject God's message. People's lives are messy. Sin continues to wage war on our affections. It is a battle in that sense but there is blessing in that battle and consider as a final thought the leadership that God has appointed to his people for us here it's it's for it's who you know Danny prayed for it's Mike and Matt and me and everyone else on the staff team it is a great privilege to lead God's people but it is a burden it's a burden you feel the responsibility at times, it can feel like a battle, one where you, you feel acutely the failures, when people seem to stagnate in their faith or go backwards or abandon their faith altogether. And you can't help but, but ask yourself, look, I know God's the one who gives the growth, but I'm supposed to water, right? Did I not water enough or in the right way? What did I do wrong? So let me tell you, please pray for your pastors like Danny did tonight. Pray for us. Encourage us. Rebuke us where needed. But do so gently. Like Paul, we bear that burden for you. And we do it gladly. Hopefully we continue to do it gladly. As Mike and I were talking about this and reflecting on it earlier in the week, Mike reflected on the fact that when ministry gets hard and the people to whom you're ministering start to become a bit of a burden to you, it is all too easy to think, 
they are a struggle to me. They are a struggle to me. They're the ones that are making my life hard. That can make you cynical and unsympathetic and, and much worse than that. Pray that God would help us, your partners, your pastors, to keep maturing ourselves in wisdom and understanding about, about the nature of ministry, that it's all about presenting people mature in Christ so that when ministry does get hard, we don't think they are a struggle for me. Instead, we think I am struggling for them. I am struggling for them. Ultimately, though, this actually goes for all of us. We are all called in one way or another to minister to each other. In fact, later in this very letter, famously, Paul will say in chapter 3, verse 16, he will exhort the Colossians to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Not just leaving it to the formal, ordained leaders. Teach and admonish one another. And so maybe it's worth asking yourself, in what ways, when you come to Minchinbury or 6pm or are involved in other ministries of the church, do you think they are a struggle for me? They're a struggle for me. How can you rejoice in that struggle, that suffering even, and say, I am struggling for them. I am struggling for them. If we need help in that, we need only look to the example of Christ himself the suffering servant who suffered on our behalves more profoundly and more necessarily than any of us could suffer for one another. He has walked that path before us and he is walking with us still. What does God want for his people? God wants his people to be mature. God wants his people to be able to rejoice in Christ and the immeasurable riches that are found in him, spiritual and otherwise, temporal and eternal, riches like the hope of glory, the hope that causes you to hold fast to Jesus when life takes its unexpected and often unwelcome and unwanted turns, that causes you to struggle on behalf of others that they might endure to the same hope, riches like the knowledge of Christ's love for you, Christ loves you. It's not like just in some general sense. Each one in this room, Christ loves you. That knowledge can enable you to rejoice, not just in spite of your suffering, but in it, especially when it is for your sisters and brothers. Knowing that by it, God is making you more reliant on him. He's making you more mature in Christ. In our experience of these things, it may be a battle. But let me tell you, there is blessing in that battle. So take heart and stand in that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the God of revelation, not just of creation. Thank you for making this world, but thank you even more for revealing yourself to us, most profoundly in the person of Jesus. I do pray that as each of us walks our path of discipleship, you may mature us. Thank you for the, the leaders uh, and the sisters and brothers in Christ you have given us to do that. Help us to see the ways in which we can play our part in maturing them. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name.